2: Today's show is brought to you by the Bowery Boys' book, Adventures in Old New York, an unconventional exploration of Manhattan's historic neighborhoods, secret spots, and colorful characters. Greg, you and I wrote that book. I seem to recall that, yes. (laughs) And we're proud to say that it's available in bookstores coast to coast. Pick up a copy today, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, your local neighborhood bookstore, wherever they sell books.
3: The Bowery Boys, episode 254, The Destruction of Old Penn Station. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey.
2: Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This
3: is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. This is the first of a few shows, not a a mini-series, a collection, perhaps. A collection of shows... A small batch. A small batch with the theme of landmarks. What is a landmark? Why do we need protection for landmarks? And we're going to begin exploring this idea with a place that's proven to be rather mystical. The original Pennsylvania Station...
2: Now, on November 27th, 1910, Penn Station, the original Penn Station, opened to the public after nine years of construction. And on that day, 100,000 New Yorkers pushed inside to tour the massive Beaux-Arts masterpiece, they did this because it was more than a train station. It was a, it was a majestic gateway to the city with soaring vaulted and glass dome ceilings and waiting rooms, a concourse, arcade. It was a thrilling and inspiring way to arrive or depart. It was a true masterpiece designed by Charles McKim
3: of McKim Mead and White, and it immediately rivaled any of the great railroad stations of Europe. However, just over 50 years later, the station would be destroyed, replaced by a massive arena
2: and a train station buried underground. A station that is, shall we say kindly, claustrophobic, Mm -hmm. and I would say utterly unloved. So while today's show is about the original Penn Station... Uh, The focus really is on its destruction. How could that station be demolished? How was it demolished? How did they make the decision to destroy it? But also technically, how did they do it? How did they go about building Madison Square Garden and the new Penn Station without ever stopping train service underneath it? In the minds of many New
3: Yorkers, especially those preservation-minded New Yorkers, Old Penn Station is a martyr, a sacrificial lamb for the fight to preserve New York City's most important landmarks. However, while it may be gone, it's not forgotten. At the end of our show, we'll take you to a couple spots within the current Penn Station where you can see a little bit of the luster of the station's former
2: old glory days. These are relics of the old station that thousands of passengers and commuters pass by every day, most without ever noticing them. So grab a hard hat and a handkerchief
3: as we bear witness to the destruction of Old Penn Station.
1: Pennsylvania Station.
3: So, Tom, we're going to Penn Station. What are your thoughts on that when someone says that to you
2: (laughs) today? Uh, I can already smell the Auntie M's pretzels (laughs) turning in their little glass box. And that's putting it kindly. That's only bringing up the smells of, of soft pretzels. Why, what do you think of?
3: (laughs) Congestion, large crowds, large noises, Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of things like that. New Yorkers have a lot of opinions about today's Penn Station, which perhaps we'll address later. But we are going back in time, Tom, to the year 1910.
2: Oh, right, the year that the original Penn Station Mm -hmm. opened. Right, now,
3: Tom, many, many years ago, you and I went to St. Peter's Basilica. In the Vatican. Wow, you're taking us to Rome. <laughs> yes. yes. So, so keep that building in mind. You were a French major in that's, college. That's true. So you are aware of the Tuileries Palace.
2: Yes. Um, th- that was part of today's Louvre. Mm-hmm.
3: That building is no longer there. And I, I don't know for sure. Have you been to St. Petersburg and seen the Winter Palace?
2: I have. I've toured it. Wow, I didn't know this was about me. <laughs>
3: well, because... In 1910, Uh these were the three largest buildings ever constructed by human hands, okay? The three largest. The fourth largest was Old Penn Station.
2: Largest in terms of area, not in terms of height.
3: No, I mean, New York also had the tallest building at the time, but we're, we're just referring to the area of the building. Pennsylvania Station was designed by Charles McKim of McKim Mead and White for the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was the largest railroad company in America. That station sat between 7th and 8th Avenues and 31st Street and 33rd Street. So it was one gigantic building that took up the entirety of those two blocks. This massive transportation stop. sat atop Pennsylvania Railroad's tracks, which were located in tunnels that were newly dug under the Hudson River to connect the railroad to Manhattan.
2: Which was a major deal because they had been stopping on the other side of the Hudson in New Jersey and then ferrying people over. Yeah. I mean, and so if that
3: wasn't enough in terms of a marvel here, they also ran under the East River to attach to a recent acquisition of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and that is the Long Island Railroad. They purchased that in 1900. And so those trains came into Penn Station.
2: And for the full story there, we recorded an entire episode on the making of that Penn Station, episode 80. We devote that show mostly to this colossal engineering achievement.
3: But in today's show, we're going to focus just on the station itself, which opened to Long Island Railroad traffic on September 8th, 1910, but to full rail traffic on November 27th, 1910, connecting Pennsylvania Station with the rest of the country.
2: So this building, this massive Beaux-Arts building, when it opened in 1910, it must have been somewhat shocking to New Yorkers to behold this mm-hmm. huge new station But didn't they also have Grand Central Station to compare it to? Well, the terminal that we know and love, Grand Central Terminal,
3: was not open yet. And the former incarnations of Grand Central were much smaller and less extravagant than Penn Railroad's station here.
2: Okay, I think you need to paint a picture of this station for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you take us on a little tour of Penn Station?
3: Let's For a moment, rebuild old Penn Station here. Let me take you specifically to 100 years ago at this moment. So around 1918 or so, right? So let's head into the train station. We're going on a trip. We have our steamer trunks packed, our traveling clothes on. Where are we heading? (laughs) Oh, it doesn't matter. Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Memphis. Who knows? Let's enter on the 7th Avenue side. Now, in today's Penn Station... Um, you slink into the ground because it's it's a sunken entrance. But back then, you would have faced a most imposing entrance indeed. You entered as though you were royalty. It was a stone building with a steel frame, which was kind of a modern mixture. It looked as though it was some sort of ancient Roman temple. It was made with Milford granite. There were Roman Doric colonnades on each side. The entrances were decorated with large clocks. Everything was so grandiose and imposing that it was almost repetitive because it was so big and just went on
2: and on from um, two whole blocks. But we're entering these columns the, through this colonnade, um, yeah, yes. and like around 32nd Street in right, the middle yes. of the structure.
3: Yes, that's where the entrance would be. And by the way, this is the entrance for pedestrians. There are also carriage entrances on 31st and on 33rd. Of course, those would be for automobiles later. But we've walked over. Sure, yeah. So So we step in through the 7th Avenue side here, and are met with an arcade of shops on either side. And this is modeled after Italian shopping arcades that you might find in Milan, for instance. And indeed, these stores, at least in the early days, would be populated with high-end boutiques, and each of these stores would be separated by columns of travertine marble. Wow, this all sounds very elegant. Well, if you were able to push through without buying anything, you then emerged into a loggia or a colonnade vestibule. To the left is a huge restaurant and to the right is a lunch counter. Do we have time for a bite? Well, we don't. But while we're here, let's say hello to the two men that are standing here in statue form. One of them is Alexander Cassatt, the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad and the man most responsible for the station. And then in 1930, he would be joined by another Pennsylvania Railroad president, Samuel Ray. But we're not hungry, so we're just going to walk straight down a grand stairway into the, quote, great room or general waiting room, which is a rather modest name for so impressively large a room.
2: Yeah, the photos of this are just incredible. This is such a vast space. It's so shocking, really, to see this huge, wide-open room in the middle of New York City. <laughs> the room was modeled on the
3: baths of Caracalla, which were an ancient Roman bath, the ruins of which you can still visit in Rome today. The waiting room had a towering ceiling with octagonal coffers and lunette windows, or you know, half-circle windows, mm-hmm. which would bathe travelers in sunlight. And then underneath those windows would be world maps, painted upon
2: the wall. This all sounds so sumptuous. Can we take a seat and sort of take it in?
3: Well, on floor level, you would be able to find ticket booths and offices and even candelabra lampposts, but you wouldn't find any benches. You couldn't sit here no in, the qu- in the waiting room. There would be later, but in 1918, there were no benches in the waiting room. If you wanted to sit down, you actually went to one of two smaller waiting rooms, One for men, one for women. Now we're walking east to west here, right? So we were on the 7th Avenue side
2: and we're walking west into the building. Right, because we still haven't, reached the trains yet we are going to board a train right (laughs) oh yeah that
3: is that is the reason we are here we grab our tickets from the ticket booths here on the floor okay and we're heading west into the building past the men and women's waiting room into the concourse so we're heading for eighth avenue Yes, we're going that direction. Now, this is my favorite part of the building, of course. It's all steel and skylights. This delicate latticework of steel beams creating staircases and bridges over the tracks. Those staircases would then take passengers to sunken platforms where there they could
2: catch the train. You know, standing here and looking around, Greg, it looks kind of like a European train station. Yeah, it's modeled after French train stations specifically.
3: It's like every romantic European postcard cliché here greeting you as you boarded your train. The platforms, Tom, were even long enough for lovers to run along departing trains, wishing farewell to their true love.
2: But we have no lovers to bid us adieu. (laughs) So we're just going to hop on one of these trains and head off. Uh, for Chicago, Memphis? Uh, Yes. So in in
3: 1918, that would probably have been our destination. Had we arrived at the station by the 1930s, more likely we would have been going to Long Island because by the 1930s, two-thirds of the traffic into Penn Station Was for the Long Island Railroad. It's amazing to think of a Pennsylvania company having such a profound impact on the development of places as far away as Oyster Bay or Montauk. Now, I should add really quickly that you could also, by the 1930s, go north because in 1917, with the construction of the Hellgate Bridge, that connected the Penn Station Railroad to destinations more north. So you could actually travel to New England
2: now. So by the 1930s, you can head west into the country. You can head north to New England or Mm -hmm. east out to Long Island.
3: Right. You could really go where your heart takes you. The station itself was really New York's own Parthenon you know, which came after decades of economic dominance in the Gilded Age. So this was sort of a trophy, if you will, of uh, of Gilded Age successes of the city. And we'll see how that will tarnish a little bit throughout the 20th century. But back then, it was so impressive that the U.S. post office eventually hired the same firm, the Kim, Mead, and White, to build what is more or less a facsimile of Penn Station across the street. That was actually built in 1912, and that's the James Farley Post Office today.
2: Ah, so if we want to get a decent idea of what the structure looked like from 7th Avenue— we can really just go over to 8th Avenue and look at the post office. Yeah, yeah.
3: It's uh, many of the same elements. Now, in the 1920s, on top of the millions of commuters that passed through here, Penn Station was also the site of spectacle and glamour as ritzy train cars whisked famed preachers and movie stars and Broadway stars, politicians into town, thousands of people just sitting at the platforms awaiting people's arrival and departures. Wow,
2: preachers and movie stars. (laughs)
3: That's how they did it back then, Tom. (laughs) This is an extremely active station during the 1930s and 1940s, although by this time it really becomes more associated with commuting than it does long-distance train travel, which would grow to become more expensive and out of reach for most people during the Great Depression. It would see the most foot traffic. The largest numbers of people would come through here actually during World War II. Yeah,
2: 1944 and 1945 were peak years for passenger traffic on US railroads, including here in Penn Station. However, there was something else going on here, because in 1944, Congress had passed the Federal Highways Act, which gave federal dollars for the construction of interstate highways to be built once the war was finished. Um, And because of this, 40,000 miles of highways would be constructed. For example, in 1946, both New Jersey Turnpike and the New York Thruway construction began. Immediately after the war. Yes, and things would change very quickly for, for a number of reasons. As pointed out in a fine book, The Late Great Pennsylvania Station by Lorraine Deal. She has some interesting stats on inner city travel. In 1945, during the war, 75% of trips uh, between cities were taken by train, and only 3 out of 100, so 3% were taken on airplanes. But 10 years later, in 1955, 33% were by train, down from 75%. And 25% were taken by plane. So 25 up from 3%. Mm-hmm. So you can see how things were drastically changing very quickly. Well, And really
3: the notion of the glamour of travel, which had defined the railroad for many decades, that glamour was now being co-opted by these brand new airlines which who were luring away customers away from Pennsylvania Railroad.
2: It was glamorous to fly coast to coast, but it was also just more practical because Mm -hmm. now you could make that trip coast to coast in between six to seven hours. And then compounding the problem for railroads after the war, you know, because of a number of different factors, middle class New Yorkers were moving to the suburbs in droves. They were moving to houses with modern conveniences and with garages. So there you have it. Cars and flights are faster. There's a little bit more glamour. But also, it seemed to signal something else also, something very American. Mm-hmm. That you, they represented progress and a new modern age. And there was something that seemed very... Stuck in the past about taking the train.
3: Yeah, g- generally speaking about taking the train. Penn Station in particular, however, had another problem, and that was now we're talking mid-1950s here, mm-hmm. right? So many decades of, of since its opening, the building was falling into disrepair. Think of the thousands of trains that have come through here, the millions and millions of people who had walked through that waiting room, the millions of people smoking cigarettes in that waiting room. Think of all of that, turn the whole building
2: into a filthy mess. And obviously they could clean it. They were able to clean the station. (laughs) They had the ability to use soap and water. Except for the fact that revenues were falling so quickly because fewer people were taking the trains in the first place that they didn't have money and resources to spend on such cosmetic matters. So soon the whole building had a kind of
3: grime to it. As a train dispatcher named Phil Donnelly said of its very last year's, quote... The station was grimy on the outside, and there was a certain monotony about the exterior. Perhaps this building that now resembled a mausoleum reminded people on some level that the age of railroad was gone, and it made them nervous to have this relic here, reminding them of something that no longer lived.
2: Mausoleum. Things are (laughs) taking a turn for the grave. (laughs) But to make matters worse... It wasn't just passenger service that was down. And by the way, like you mentioned, the Penn Railroad, the Penzi, was the nation's largest passenger rail service. But they also made a lot of money from freight service, freight service handling the Northeast. But by the late 50s, industry had taken a hit in the Northeast and interstate trucking had become more popular and more convenient for factories. So they were kind of getting it on all sides. But they're still a big American company,
3: so they they must have had some ideas about turning this thing around by the fifties oh right? they
2: they certainly had ideas, and I think you just brought up another good point to remember here, which is that the Pennsylvania Railroad was a massive private company they weren't funded by the government they they had investors to please and they needed to turn a profit or at least they needed to try to turn a profit they could see what was coming in the distance they could see the the train wreck if you will (laughs) Uh that was coming in the distance as the entire american railroad industry was in decline and they needed as a private company to come up with ways to make money for their investors And for that, they turned to another opportunity that they had for raising funds, real estate, because they owned huge parcels of land, including rail yards and stations in major cities all over the country. So perhaps they could develop over and around the tracks that were leading into these stations.
3: After all, real estate in New York City is always a safe bet.
2: Nearly always. (laughs) Almost. (laughs) So in the 50s, they started floating around some different plans that involved developing some of this real estate. Like in 1951, they proposed developing a, quote, world trade center over the train yard uh, that was between 9th and 10th avenues. So a block directly west of the post office. They proposed selling off the air rights above those tracks. That never ended up happening, perhaps because it was considered at the time too far west but it at least shows you what they were thinking.
3: And of course, another World Trade Center would soon be developed further south in the financial district.
2: Yes, uh, the name was still available. But four years later, in June 1955, the railroad did succeed in selling the air rights, this time between 7th and 8th Avenues. That would be over Pennsylvania Station. They sold it in a rather secret deal to the architectural firm Webb and Knapp, and this would have been a massive $100 million project to build a, quote, palace of progress that would, among other things, be home to a permanent World's Fair that would be presided over and run by showman Billy Rose. <laughs> well, this sounds very ambitious. This was going to go over the station it was going to be built on top of it? Oh, no. the The station would be redeveloped underground for 13 million dollars it would be streamlined and air conditioned and according to the railroad quote when completed the new station will be the world's finest <coughs> greg actually just did a spit take all over his microphone <laughs> Uh, but but anyway, the president of Web and Knapp was never able to raise the money, so this project didn't go anywhere. Uh, and there were other projects as well. You know, one project called for the demolition of the entire front part, uh, the, the arcade that you were talking about mm-hmm. along 7th Avenue. Just destroy all of that all the way back to the grand waiting room and replace that arcade. You said that was very uh, reminiscent of Milan. Uh-huh. Replace it with a parking lot. Which, when you see the architectural drawings for it, um, you see, like, three people kind of, like, passing through the parking lot on their way into the front door of Penn Station. It's kind of hilarious to consider what the reality would be, you know, having five or six hundred thousand people brushing (laughs) past your poor parked car.
3: (laughs) Well, that sounds utterly nauseating, and luckily that didn't uh, come to fruition either. So what did they settle on?
2: Well, they, they moved forward with their plan B. They couldn't raise enough money for big construction projects, so they decided to make some updates to the station instead. And those would be unveiled the next year in February of 1958, when designers took some cues from the new modernist architecture and interior design happening in airline terminals and opened up a futuristic-looking new ticket counter in the middle of the waiting room.
3: It looked a bit like a clamshell,
2: Mm -hmm. and it blocked the men's and women's waiting rooms. But on the upside, they were very high-tech, and they included um, closed-circuit television, so you could watch the reservation clerks in the back rooms uh, as they booked your seat on your upcoming trip.
3: Oh, how horrifyingly modern that sounds.
2: (laughs) It sounds like the Jetsons, actually. (laughs)
3: By the way, there are model cars here in the waiting room, essentially beckoning people to buy Chevrolets.
2: And essentially blocking the passageway of people because the railroad had also turned to opening up advertising space in the station wherever they could. But this was all just small change. You know, all this advertising was just small change. They are a major, major private company that is losing big money on this station. They need to turn it around. And they knew that the only way to make some real cashier was to work with the space above the station or even in the space occupied by the station. But to make that happen, they would need another partner, a partner with enough money to actually buy up space and develop something significant. And that, Greg, is where we cue the entrance for Madison Square Garden. The old classic venue that
3: by the late 1950s here was actually home in Hell's Kitchen on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th. This was the third incarnation of such a structure named Madison Square Garden. The home that Tex Ricard built, as they called it, named for the promoter of the garden in its day.
2: But by this time, it had outgrown that space up in Hell's Kitchen, and the Penn Station spot seemed ideal for the garden, because they would have easy access to trains, commuter trains, and all those subway lines. In 1960, the Madison Square Garden Corporation was formed, and finally, a plan went public on July 24th, 1961. From the next day's New York Times, quote, "...new Madison Square Garden to rise atop Penn Station." A new Madison Square Garden will be built on top of Pennsylvania Station as part of a $50 million complex that will include sports arenas, offices, restaurants, convention halls, and a hotel. And the, and the article is really just about Madison Square Garden. Um, later on, down here in the middle, the main waiting room of Pennsylvania Station will be left as is and special facilities such as ramps and arcades will be built to permit ready access to the sports and entertainment facilities for persons using either the Pennsylvania Railroad or the Long Island Railroad. So in this first word announcement to the public, the main waiting room of Penn Station was to remain as is. A couple days later, however, on the 27th, the story would be a little bit different. They would announce... The present station structure will be raised to the street level and the sublevel concourses of the Pennsylvania and Long Island Railroad will be modernized.
3: So they let this bad news leak out in dribs and drabs, it sounds like.
2: Not all at once. But what's interesting is that all the news in the papers were really focused on the new. It was the new thing that was being built. It was the excitement surrounding the new Madison Square Garden. That's what the artist renderings are that's what the headlines are about
3: it was almost like they were saying oh and then by the way we're also tearing down Penn Station
2: after first saying that they wouldn't I mean
3: could they just do this I mean I understand that they're a private company but this is a public facility were they just allowed to sell this off and tear
2: it down well, and I guess that's sort of the crux of this whole story, right? The big question is, how did they do this? And the fact of the matter is that in 1960, or in this the case of this article, 61, historic buildings didn't have the protections that we take for granted today. The Landmarks Preservation Commission did not yet exist. There was a city planning commission, but in 1961, they didn't have the power to govern demolitions. They had the power to issue and, and oversee construction permits. And, and actually, even in one of these articles, they say they asked if the plans had been submitted to the City Planning Commission. And the developers responded that, yeah, sure, the, the plans for the whole structure had been drawn to meet all the new zoning requirements. So that's what they were basically concerned with. And quite frankly, by 1961, it seemed like New Yorkers had just fallen out of love with Old Penn Station. Not to say that it didn't
3: have its defenders, especially among a small group of influential architects who will band together in one last effort to save
0: Old Penn Station.
2: We'll get to their protests and the city's reaction
0: after this. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.
1: Carnival. Choose
3: fun. Ships registry Bahamas, Panama. Tom, how do you think people would react if news came out that the Woolworth building was going to be torn down and replaced with a 400-floor tower, some ridiculously large tower? Let's just pretend that there are no protections, the protections that we give landmarks today. Imagine that there are none of those. How would people react today?
2: Well that's that's nearly impossible to even conceive of. I mean there would be great wailing and gnashing of teeth and and <laughs> yeah. there would be people in the in the streets I would imagine complaining that they were getting nickel and dimed. Out, of, out <laughs> yeah. of a great masterpiece. Well, yeah, it would be an immense reaction. It would be a national, even
3: international reaction. You just can't take something like that away from the landscape without a huge reaction. Unfortunately, you really can't do that yes. today. Because there are these landmark protections in place, but they did not have those in the early 1960s. And you also didn't have the same type of outrage that you might see today. Not as much as you would expect at the news that Penn Station was going to be destroyed. Are you saying people didn't care? Well, I mean, there's a lot of factors that went into the almost a malaise that really took place in the the wake of this news. Perhaps some thought there was an unspoken arrangement, that buildings that were really of value to the public would never be torn down. But, of course, there wasn't any kind of arrangement. A lot of people shrugged and said, well, I mean, it's a private company. Penn Railroad owns the building. What can we do about it? They they were resigned to the fate.
2: An interesting argument because it's such a public space. But you're right. It was a building that had been constructed by private company funds and was being operated by a private business. Yeah, it, it was not a local or federal
3: building at this time. Other people noted that, in fact... Pennsylvania Station was already gone. It was dead in many people's eyes. It had been gutted. The inside of it had been turned into some kind of a mis- monstrosity. It, its glory days were already f- behind it.
2: They didn't like the closed-circuit TV <laughs> ticket counter? The
3: clamshell uh, didn't appeal to the purists. But there were some protests. Oh, sh- sure. There were many organizations that were in place for, for just these types of events, such as the Municipal Art Society and And the American Institute of Architects, both of these organizations, spoke out against the pending destruction of Penn Station. Taking a more active role was a handful of prominent architects who banded together to fight back against this announcement and to remind the public of the aesthetic beauty and the importance of Pennsylvania Station to the life of New York City.
2: This small group of notable citizens and architects banded together in 1962 to form the Action Group for Better Architecture in New York, a group whose acronym is AGBANY or Agbani <laughs> Agbani Agb- Ag- They were brilliant architects,
3: but not great creators of acronyms. <laughs> The Agbony and the Ecstasy. Well, this organization included such architectural greats as Philip Johnson, Ulrich Franzen, Charles Evans Hughes Jr., and even Aileen Saarinen, the widow of Aero Saarinen.
2: And this group of people, along with uh, members of the Municipal Arts Society, would lobby, successfully, Mayor Wagner in 1962 to finally form a City Landmarks Commission... Which he did that year in 1962. However, the the commission would not really have any power to designate or stop the demolition of buildings uh, until 1965.
3: This handful of architects and intellectuals who formed Agbeny, they got together on August 2nd, 1962, to actually make a show of protest out in front of Penn Station. Many of them had just come from a press conference that was across the street at the Statler Hotel. Today's Hotel Pennsylvania. They left the hotel and began picketing in front of the building and it was a, a it was a very curious sight for many this collection of famous nerds essentially
2: you know I mean people, it was a very well-dressed picket line they
3: were very very well dressed and and those placards were all spelled correctly too and well designed Yeah, very much so I mean it seemed funny to people because you know this was an era of civil rights protests and would later be war protests you know things that were of true life and death and so for many New York. Yorkers, this seemed rather curious because it was just about a building. But the New York Times wrote about this in in a lot more of a meaningful way. Quote, One of the city's strangest and most heartening picket lines appeared in New York recently. It wound its way around Pennsylvania Station led by upper echelon architectural professionals carrying signs of protests against the impending destruction of the Kim Meaton White's classic monument to make way for a $90 million redevelopment scheme of dubious grandeur. The public demonstration was joined by about 200 leaders in the architectural field, including the designers of some of the city's best new buildings. What they were protesting at the moment was the increasing irreplaceable loss of New York's architectural past through irresponsible, speculative building. What they plan to protest in the future is the inferior
2: quality of much new work. But despite their protests and despite their high-profile positions they were up against a bigger battle here. They couldn't turn the fortunes around for the Pennsylvania Railroad or make this structure uh, more practical. They couldn't magically make it
3: a more functional building overnight. It had problems since the beginning, since 1910 when it opened. And then there was this other huge problem which would become more of an issue in in the 1960s, which was its location, that location on the west side in the old Tenderloin was far less convenient and even out of the way in comparison to, say, Grand Central, which was at 42nd Street and Park. Better designed, better situated. It was a building that people passed through. It was a part of New York City, whereas Penn Station was over to the west, and there wasn't a lot of through traffic. So, Because of that, it was actually harder to keep quality businesses in those arcade shops, for instance. And so the whole thing just kept deteriorating
2: in a way that could
3: not be stopped.
2: Not to mention that the railroads were in a totally different position because over at Grand Central, they could develop the air rights around the station and above the station. And Mm -hmm. they did very successfully to raise revenues for the railroad. Whereas over here... You know, they were much more limited in how they could develop around or on top of the station. Mm -hmm. And so they had opted for this plan just to demolish the station and put the train station underground.
3: And so on a rainy morning on October 28th, 1963, workmen began laying their jackhammers into the side of Penn Station's exterior walls. What's really sad is that when they cracked into those walls, which were filthy, of course, from decades of use. But as they cracked in, people noticed immediately a clean pink marble underneath it, which then, of course, they proceeded to render into rubble. By that afternoon, kind of watching this whole thing was was a s- smaller group of architects from, from Agbani. Um, who were mostly just there to mourn. They even wore armbands that said
2: "shame" on the side of them. They must have just been beside themselves. Yeah, I mean,
3: grief stricken. Yeah, I mean, for for them in particular, here are these people who make buildings. They construct buildings, and they are watching this grand example of their craft be dismantled. It was especially painful to see those grand eagles be taken to the ground.
2: It was one of the very first things they did was to remove the 14 granite eagles that had protected the old facade, used to look down over the entrances. One by one, those were lowered to the ground and stored over on a parking lot.
3: Rubbing salt in the wounds of these architects and New Yorkers, was a statement made by Morris Lipset, who was the head of demolition of the project. Quote, If anybody seriously considered it art, they would have put up some money to save it. You always have half a dozen societies around trying to preserve something. In some areas, the land is just too valuable to save anything that doesn't fully utilize it.
2: You, you said he worked in demolition. <laughs> yes. Perfect job for that guy. <laughs> he had great attitude, right? Another kind of sad quote
3: I read was from a man who worked at the lunch counter at Penn Station, the lunch counter that was now closed. He said on his last day, quote, this city's got the right name, New York. Nothing ever gets old around here. Soon that wrecking ball got rid of the arcade walls, it smashed those lunette windows, wrecked the grand staircase, those high ceilings came tumbling down, and all remnants of those fine waiting rooms were erased. Many months later, a banner was slapped on the side of the destruction site, uh, a banner that people called Penn Station's Obituary. It was a 60-foot sign that proclaimed the brand new Madison Square Garden project and the new redeveloped station underground. It kind of looks like a cheap banner at like a community music festival. It just made the whole thing come home for so many people who just couldn't imagine that this building was about to go out of their lives forever.
2: This is also tragic and so sad, and yet it's so amazing to consider that at the same time, while the wrecking balls are hitting the arcade and the the loggia and the waiting yes. room, <laughs> uh-huh. there's still a train station operating underground. Hundreds of thousands of commuters and passengers are still passing through uh, the station, even while demolition is happening, and construction on the new buildings are taking place at the same time. I mean, you think that riding into Penn Station is unpleasant today. I can't imagine <laughs> that that was very fun. Like It must have been a mess. You know, demolition, you said, began in 1963. By that point, the construction plans had changed again. Uh, The project was now a $105 million project, which called for the construction of a 22,000-seat Madison Square Garden that sat directly on top of the old station, along with another 4,000-seat arena, uh, restaurants, shops, bowling alleys, exhibition spaces, and at first, at least, two giant office towers on the 7th Avenue side. That would later be replaced by just a plan for one office tower. The plans would continue to change even in 1963 while demolition was going on, but the final plans would call for a 20,000-seat arena that sat directly on top of the old station uh, and was 425 feet in diameter, a 5,000-seat smaller amphitheater, and just one 29-story office tower called Two-Penn Plaza. The budget swelled to $116 million. One of the first things that they did was to erect 500 supporting columns from foundations underneath the tracks, and those went up through the old Penn Station even while they were demolishing it. And on top of these columns, they installed floor beams at street level, For Madison Square Garden. They were basically building out the floor of Madison Square Garden, which would also serve underneath it, under a giant concrete slab, as the ceiling of the new modern Penn Station. That giant slab was constructed in quadrants, and as each part was constructed, they'd remove the old station above it, and then construct the building and the station underneath it. And did this new subterranean
3: station, did it have anything in common with the old station? Like, did it have an arcade? Did it have a (laughs) loggia?
2: It may have had a pinball arcade. (laughs) It had no logias that I know of. You know, it was notable for having a lot of escalators. They claimed to have more escalators than any other building in the world, and that they could move 90,000 people an hour. Notably, it also had air conditioning, uh, which was a major benefit or perceived benefit. Uh, there was a new electronic train signs, which was very high tech. There, there were three levels, in fact. There were two levels of concourses and a lower level for the train platforms. Which brings me to a rather ironic point, and that is that that lowest level, the train platforms, Mm -hmm. was virtually unchanged from the original Penn Station. So they are a vestige of the old original
3: classic structure.
2: And not just the platforms, uh, but also the tunnels and the electrical work, all of it. It's all the same infrastructure that was built and was marveled about uh, uh, more than 100 years ago, When it opened in 1910, you know, like the marvel of the train station was both the building above, but was also all of the infrastructure underground that made the railroad work. And all of that stuff was unchanged. The only thing that really changed was the building, which isn't to say that critics loved the new building when it (laughs) opened. And Madison Square Garden, by the way, opened 50 years ago this month, in February of 1968. And you can't even really say when the new Penn Station opened, because it never closed in the first place, which is a remarkable thing to consider. They did all this work while only shutting down two tracks at a time, which is especially bitterly funny, considering the famous summer of hell that commuters (laughs) went through last year. You know, it's interesting
3: that we still call it Penn Station. Like it's, it's the, the, the place you go to is
2: Pennsylvania station,
3: right? But whatever happened to Pennsylvania railroad?
2: Well, the railroad, you know, which had been like one of the largest companies in the country thought that the new money that they'd be getting from Madison square garden, they thought that that would help bail them out and turn their fortunes around. Uh, but of course they couldn't really change, you know, the narrative of how people were traveling And so in 1968, they ended up merging with the New York Central, forming a combined railroad called the Penn Central. However, even together, they couldn't turn the tide, and the company went bankrupt in June 1970. Out of that came Conrail in 1976, and meanwhile, the U.S. government formed Amtrak in 1971 to serve passengers. Believe it or not, even though the original Penn Station is gone... It
3: is certainly not forgotten. It holds a honored place in the minds of preservation-minded New Yorkers, but there are also actual parts of that building that you can still see for yourself in the location
2: of the current Penn Station. There are bits and pieces of the statues that we were talking about, the staircases that are still there today. And we're about to head into Penn Station to meet up with Justin Rivers, who gives a tour of the relics of old Penn Station that still exist today. Shall we head to Penn Station? I love going to Penn Station. Let's go.
3: Well, if you haven't guessed from the sounds around us, we have arrived at Penn Station. Tom and I are standing on the corner of 31st and 7th Avenue. Behind me are some
2: food vending carts.
3: Tom, would you like some some
2: roasted peanuts? (laughs) Nuts for nuts. Uh, Here we are, we're looking for Justin Rivers and I think I see him him. standing. Yeah, let's walk over to him. He's standing. Standing in front of Madison Square Garden. Hi, Justin. Hey guys, how you doing?
3: Justin, how are you? Good. Good.
4: Thanks for meeting up with us. Can you tell us uh, what you do? So I am a uh, tour guide and playwright. Uh, I work for Untapped Cities, and I give a tour of the remnants of Penn Station. Greg and I were wondering if you could perhaps show us a couple of your
2: favorite remnants and relics of the old station.
4: Yeah, I would be happy to. It would be my pleasure.
3: Well, before we even take another step, I think we have one remnant staring down at us right now. We are standing underneath one of the stone eagles.
4: Yes. So actually, this is one of my favorite remnants. So uh, it's it's convenient we're starting here. That gentleman behind us or over us is uh, 5,500 pounds of poured concrete. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was designed by the German sculptor Adolf Weinmann, who was the sculptor of choice for McKim, Mead and White. All the statuary in the station was done by him. There were over, I believe, 22 eagles spread out all over the country after the demolition. They were removed from the facades. They were given to different spots. Um, They were not dumped in the Meadowlands like the rest of the station Uh was. And so two of them are right here. One of them is here basically at 31st and 7th. Correct. And the other is... Is flanking 33rd and 7th. Are there any other eagles in New York City? Yes, there's one at Cooper Union. Ah, okay, great. Uh, While we're standing here, there's also another statue kind of hidden right outside that used to be in the main waiting room of the station. Oh, let's go check it out.
2: Okay, so we just walked up a couple steps from the street and in
4: toward Madison Square Garden. And where's this statue? So basically the statue is right behind the awning, which is considered to be the main entrance of the station. Right by the entrance to Tupen Plaza. Yes, correct. And you will see another Adolf Einmann sculpture of Samuel Ray, who was the vice president of the Pennsylvania Railroad at the time of the station's construction. He is also the mastermind behind the idea of the station and the neighborhood within a neighborhood that they built. That's why he's standing with the plans of the station in his hands next to a model of the station.
3: That is kind of the coolest element of this is that there is a tiny model of the old Penn Station, the Penn Station that doesn't exist, standing
2: on the spot where it once did. And so where precisely would this statue have been
4: standing in the station? So once you enter the station from 7th Avenue, you walk down a retail arcade. After that retail arcade, you got to a grand set of stairs. Right. right. That was the entrance to the main waiting room. The loggia, Tom. The loggia, right. And so he was standing in the loggia? He was standing in the loggia, oh right. Oh, my God. And he was right on the side of the stairs opposite Alexander Cassatt.
2: The president of the railroad. The president
4: of the railroad. Yes. And and these
2: two men would have had a fabulous view. And today they look at a Chase vestibule. <laughs> yes,
4: they do. They look right at Chase vestibule and the ugly columns of Tupan Plaza. Uh, so also Samuel Ray is mounted on original station granite. Greg, we really shouldn't take it for granted. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where are you going to take us to next? So next, what we're going to do is we're actually going to enter the station from 32nd Street. We're going to go downstairs, down that tunnel to uh, the Amtrak Concourse. Okay. At the Amtrak Concourse actually was uh, built into the old dual-level concourse of the original station. So one of the reasons why we have remnants is because the contemporary station was sort of jammed into that old dual-concourse system. Mm-hmm. So what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna find uh, on Amtrak level, we are gonna find the last remaining departure level staircase from
1: 1910.
4: Wow. Um, Let's head over there now.
2: All right, so we're heading over to the main entrance. We're avoiding the bus ticket sellers. And we're we're taking the
4: escalator down right now. So we're heading down, which reminds me of the Vincent Scully quote, very famous about Penn Station. Uh, We used to enter the city like gods, but now we scuttle in like rats, and it certainly feels that way. Like (laughs) the pizza rats. (laughs) Yes, Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay, so
2: at the bottom of the escalator, we're stepping off, and we're now on the Amtrak level.
4: So flanking us on either side is New Jersey Transit and LIRR. Uh, Both concourses, very different from each other. A lot of people don't know LIRR Concourse is exactly where it used to be from 1910 until 1963. Hasn't moved at all. So we've just passed a pizza shop
2: and we're in a giant
4: round rotunda area. So this round rotunda area is supposed to mimic the old main waiting room when they redesigned the station. (laughs) Really poor facsimile, if you ask me.
3: That is amusing, to
4: say the least. It's funny because it seems like nobody's standing here. Nobody's ever standing here. It's sort of like the anti-Penn Station here. They're crowded all around the surrounding areas, but nobody ever here. But come on, let's go see the staircase at Track 17. Yes. Okay, we keep walking. Walking really toward 8th Avenue. Yes, correct. We're basically walking to 8th Avenue. But we're almost there. We're almost at the corner of Okay. the Amtrak Concourse. Tucked over here...
2: Kind of underneath the escalators to get out of the station is track 17
4: yeah and so track 17 actually looks like the entryway to an office and uh, it's next to auntie ann's <laughs> yeah. but it's sitting next to a remnant treasure in penn station which is the last departure staircase which we're standing at the top of right now
3: this is extraordinary yeah this looks quite unlike the many many escalators that are in penn station i love the brass banisters these are extraordinary
4: all 1910 originals, and this is the last of her kind. Uh, shes You could tell on the railings themselves, it's pitted, it's old, but there's a certain dignity to them. Also, the X's and the moldings on the sides of the stairs, uh, it was a trait of McKin, Mead, and White. They loved their staircases uh, and their railings to have these X's. So can we walk down them? Yeah. We're walking down to track level. So we are walking down from what used to be old departure level down directly to track level. And
2: as we mentioned in the show, the platforms and the tracks that we're walking down to are the originals. Yes,
4: they are. Nothing's moved since 1910 down here.
3: We just walked down that extraordinary staircase, and we are right here on track 17. And yet now we've walked a short distance, a little more towards the 7th Avenue side, And there's another one except it's slightly smaller but it looks very similar it's also from the original station right
4: yeah original 1910 smaller staircase tucked in behind the longer departure level staircase and these were the staircases for passengers arriving into new york they went up to mid-level
2: and when i look up there i see it it's the long island railroad waiting area right yeah so
4: it's uh it is the corridor for the long island railroad up there it's also mid-level under Amtrak, which is a commuter secret. If you are trying to get out on an Amtrak, you can stand on this level and look at your uh, track designation so you don't have to do the bottleneck upstairs.
2: Oh, you learned that here. You got (laughs) the help of But turning and looking at the tracks for a second, I mean, we're looking at pillars and, and beams across the ceiling and we're looking at the actual tracks heading to tunnels. We know that these are the same platforms, but all of
4: that infrastructure is the same? It's all the same, yeah. The reason why was not one day of transportation could be disturbed for the demolition and construction process in the 60s. So basically the infrastructure had to say exactly the way it was from 1910 for them to build Madison Square Garden and to pen over our heads. Wow, which I guess has resulted in certain complications today too. A lot. Yes. <laughs> Wait, before we go, there's one more thing I really want to show you. Oh, let's go. Okay, we're heading up that staircase. Where are you taking us, Justin? So uh, basically, we are on the Long Island Railroad Corridor, which is a very low ceiling. And we spend a lot of time talking about Old Penn and how high the ceilings were. But this corridor is actually an old station corridor just covered up. It's so low, it it, it seems so kind of dark and claustrophobic. But no, actually, the original station, this is the exact height of the ceilings at the time for Arrival's level concourse. Uh, McKin, Mead and White, fought against the idea of not getting light down here by putting in glass block floors, which translated from bringing the sunlight down from the original ceiling through down to track level. Oh, cool.
2: Any of that still remain?
4: Oh, yeah. More than you think. (laughs) So lucky for us, Penn Station is always in a state of disrepair, to put it nicely. So if you just look at any part of the busted ceiling, you'll see old glass block floor from 1910. You see
2: that? Oh yeah, look at that. So, we're, so we, just, <laughs> we just stepped over to the nearest open panel. Um, and you look up and you can actually
4: see that grill work up there. Yeah, the glass block floor is looking right down at you. And it's covered with terrazzo that we were standing on when we were upstairs in the Amtrak concourse. I've
3: never wanted to look into a passage full of dirty pipes more in my life. <laughs> but yeah, that's beautiful.
2: Okay, so we're going to head out to 8th Avenue. Um, and how are we going to get there? There's so, so many options.
4: There are so many options, but there is a brand new way to get to 8th Avenue. It's actually a brand new way to use Penn Station, which is the West Corridor yeah. built into the new Moynihan Station, which was the old Farley Post Office.
2: So look at that. We've just passed the 8th Avenue Station. Oh, my
4: goodness. And it's a brand new space. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's immaculate. It's immaculate. So basically, this is a new corridor right under the post office for tracks 5 to 20. Uh, And so Governor Cuomo opened this June 20th, 2017. So it's brand new. It has that new station smell. It links up to the pen across the street. You can walk the tracks right back over there if you want to. Um, this brings to mind
3: current plans or current proposals for a brand new Penn Station. I've heard all sorts of different wildly expensive proposals. What's happening in the former post office now, that James A. Farley post office, which is now Moynihan Station, right?
4: Correct. It's officially called Moynihan Station. Governor Cuomo this summer. Opened this corridor as phase one of the Moynihan Station project using the Old Farrelly Post Office as the gateway the nation uses to come into New York now. So Amtrak will be using a much larger portion of this post office, about 145,000 square feet as the gateway into New York. That is uh, signed, sealed and delivered The governor promises somewhere around 2020 that entire project should be finished.
2: So phase one is this part here that we're standing in. And phase two is Amtrak and Long Island Railroad using Moynihan Station.
4: Correct. So the courtyard behind the hallway that is the post office will come open. They'll glass it over and use that as a concourse. New Jersey Transit stays where it is. Correct. New Jersey Transit and LIRR will partially both share what we know as Penn Station today back across the street where there's a lot of speculation as what may happen to Penn but nothing officially decided yet. And speculation about what might happen to Madison Square Garden. Lots of speculation about that. So a lot of people wanna see Madison Square Garden taken off of the top of Penn Station and moved to the west Mm -hmm. uh, near Hudson Yards. The Madison Square Garden Corporation has said they will move if you buy our air rights back and they're asking for $2 billion to do that. So stay tuned because this is a story that's still developing. Very much so. Jesse, we wanted to thank you for
3: walking us through this tangle of corridors and helping us find the remaining vestiges of old Penn Station here. Thank you so much.
4: Always a pleasure.
2: And how would people
4: find out more about the tours that you give? Uh, They can go to UntapCities.com and click on Tours. You'll see it right there.
3: Now, as much as I would love to just kind of walk around and eat pretzels and beer and popcorn <laughs> all day and kind of stare at the characters of Penn Station, we got to head back to the studio. Oh, man. <laughs> well, we can grab some pretzels and take them to the studio. And get a beer to go. <laughs> yes.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Justin.
3: We're back in Barry Boy's studio and preparing for next week's show. In fact, it's a continuation of sorts of the themes that we've talked about here, which is endangered train stations and what to do to protect them. We're going to talk about a crisis that New York City went through in the 1960s and 70s involving that other huge room sitting in the middle of New York, Grand Central.
2: And that story has a much happier outcome, largely because of the successes of groups like the Municipal Art Society and and the Landmarks Preservation Commission, which we said had been formed during this entire battle to save Penn Station, but was powerless until 1965 to do anything. So come
3: back for that show next week and come to our website, Barryboyshistory.com to see a lot of wonderful and some sad photographs of old Pennsylvania
2: Station. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us with their support on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash Bowery Boys. Greg, we are throwing a party in just over four weeks.
3: Yes, we're looking forward to it.
2: We're going to be throwing that in Brooklyn and our patrons will be the first to hear the details about this party. So patrons, keep an eye on emails coming to you from Patreon for more information. So thank you
3: very much for joining us on this sad story of old Pennsylvania Station.
2: We promise it'll be happier next week.
3: (laughs) Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.